Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. So this is a joke my dad used to tell. My dad was kind of like the king of bad jokes, and this is my kind of go-to. And it's, a mummy walks into a bar. Bartender says, hey, you look like you need to unwind. Grown, I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. <laughs> and I'm Rico Galliano. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Peter Silberman of the band The Antlers. That'll help break the ice. Yeah. They're releasing a new EP this week that's way better than that joke. By several orders of magnitude, <laughs> I should say. Later, we speak with British comedy phenom Simon Amstel about his new one-man show, Numb. Also coming up, star singer and music revivalist Michael Feinstein and comedian Jimmy J.J. Walker answers your etiquette questions. This show is going to be... Don't say it. Dynamite. No. But first, the news. But for you, dear podcasters, let's skip the hourly NPR news and go straight to more show. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later, Michael Feinstein, singer, pianist, and champion of the Great American Songbook, mm. shares some of his favorite rare records. Nice. Ben Halen is in that songbook, right? Uh, I think they closed the book in the 50s. That's terrible. Maybe they're in the supplement. I hope but so. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. <laughs> All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Fighting is continuing in Damascus. Romney is fending off the latest calls for the release of his tax returns. Mad Men American Horror Story and Downton Abbey lead the Emmy nomination. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Patty Hirsch, senior producer of Marketplace Money, the personal finance public radio show. Patty, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, a big story for us this week is, is this report that came out from Edmunds.com saying that the amount of stick shifts that are being sold in the United States has increased by 3%, so more people driving stick. More, Whoa. Really? Yeah. Why? Well, I don't know. Maybe they want to look cool. I mean, there's <laughs> a great thing about driving stick, right? It makes you look cool, obviously, to other guys. I mean, girls don't really care. <laughs> the downside, of course, is that you can't use your phone because you've got to change. It's difficult. Th- that, that's one of the downsides. Like, stick is so much work. Right? Stick is like, if you want to have a sandwich, it's like milling your own flour. So, so much work. <laughs> they have automatic cars now. Why not just drive them? It's so much simpler. Because it's like, I mean, I learned to drive stick. I came to America. It's like driving around in like a big bumper car. <laughs> you know, you feel like a child. I, I do want to point out, though, that you're not supposed to use your phone even when you're driving automatic here in California. Oh, that's a rule? <laughs> it may be bumper cars because you just, like, do you actually put your hands on the wheel at all when you're driving? There's a wheel? <laughs> but it is, I mean, like you you obviously were born and raised in Europe. Mm-hmm. It is different. I mean, uh, both Brendan and I have had experiences where we've gotten vacationing in foreign countries. You try to rent a car, and if you don't specify automatic, you're hosed because they, they only have sticks. It's true. Yeah. Automatics over there are as rare as rocking horse poo. I mean, they're very <laughs> difficult to find. <laughs> Wait a second, what? It was rare think, as rocking horse droppings. I think, that, I think the EPA banned that. It's an alternative fuel. Oh, yeah. But I mean, this is, seems like it's a, it's a blip, right? I mean, there's, there's some yeah. talk about it being a trend, but most people are saying the trend will, will continue the way it has been since 1940, which is away from stick shift and towards automatic because, you know, it's easier and we're lazy. <laughs> God bless America. <laughs> Patty Hirsch, thanks for the small talk. Always a pleasure to be with you guys. And now, time for cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our dry, fruit-forward history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1801, the people of Cheshire, Massachusetts created one of the oddest political gifts ever. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Thomas Jefferson's biggest fans were cheesemakers. Specifically, Baptists in the cheesemaking town of Cheshire, Massachusetts. See, in New England, Baptists were a tiny minority with no political power. So Jefferson's belief that church and state should be separate sounded great to them. In fact, when Jefferson won the presidency, the Cheshire Baptists were so elated, they decided to make their hero a gift. In July 1801, they began work on a gigantic wheel of cheese. Four feet tall, 15 inches thick, the thing weighed over 1,200 pounds. It was too heavy for a wagon, so they had to wait till winter to haul it to Washington, D.C. on a sled. And when it arrived on New Year's Day, Jefferson called it, quote, the greatest cheese that was ever put to press. It wasn't the greatest for long, though. 30 years later, a New Yorker bestowed a 1,400-pound cheese upon President Andrew Jackson, who set it up in the White House and invited the general public to come eat it. It was gone in two hours. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line. The booze! (laughs) That's the spirit. (laughs) I'm on the line with Nancy Thomas. She is the owner and founder of... Metze Bistro and Bar in the Berkshires, uh, in a town about 15 miles up from Cheshire. Nancy, you've heard the history. What cocktail did you create? And I hope there's no cheese in it. <laughs> there's no cheese in it, but <laughs> it will go really well with cheese. Oh, I'm so, intrigued. Tell me more. Well, so we created a cocktail, which we decided to name the Berkshire Local Motive. The Local and Motive. Is that because they motive. put did they put the cheese on a train at any point? Or I think they were... <laughs> they, they didn't. They actually were sled, very... Right? cautionary to the handling of the cheese and put it on a sled, yeah. Okay. So we started our cocktail in a shaker glass with uh, a local product, Berkshire Mountain Bourbon. Oh. It's a distillery here in Berkshire County. That is the reason we're calling it the local motive. That's the local motive. (laughs) We're big advocates of small agriculture and that Jeffersonian spirit of the small farm. Yes. Uh, We added one ounce of an aged apple brandy. As you know, the cheese was actually made in a cider press. I, I didn't know that, but now I do. And then we added a quarter ounce of maple syrup, a couple of dashes of Peychaud's bitters, which is an American bitters, over ice, and give it a good stir until it's well chilled. And then we like to use a little vintage cocktail glass, which I call a coupe, which is like a martini-style glass, but the old-fashioned ones, and add to the top of it a little sparkling cider. That sounds delightful. So this is a smaller martini glass? It's a smaller martini glass, like you might imagine in the 50s or something, that little coupe glass. Yeah, do you think that's appropriate for such a big item that we're celebrating? (laughs) I think the cheese can be mammoth, but I think we have to be cautionary when drinking lots of hard liquor. And Brendan, the mammoth cheese... Obviously created long before individually wrapped cheese slices. Obviously. Which would have made it much easier to transport. (laughs) That's true. They could have just sent it in like a million envelopes. Yeah, in the mail. Of course, course today, you know, presidential supporters would just create the cheese super pack, (laughs) which would obviously be a whole assortment of cheeses. Yeah. 
like a fruit basket. With millions of dollars <laughs> stuffed inside. Exactly. Folks, you can send things to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Millions of dollars appreciated. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Today our guest is five-time Grammy-nominated musician Michael Feinstein. He's on tour now, performing Great American Music, but he also collects and preserves Great American Music. He serves on the Library of Congress's National Recording Preservation Board. Here he is to list some recent discoveries. My name is Michael Feinstein. I am a inveterate collector of rare recordings, air checks, radio broadcasts, and sound bits that tend to get lost. That's my real passion. So here's a bunch of things I've come across recently that are all unheard for decades and some actually never heard by the public. Number one is a piece composed by Oscar Levant, who was a great concert pianist. He was the foremost interpreter of the music of George Gershwin. We wouldn't know George Gershwin's music as well as we do today if it weren't for Oscar Levant, who championed performances of Rhapsody in Blue in the days when Gershwin was considered lowbrow and orchestras didn't want to play his music. Also was a very popular television personality and made a lot of movies like An American in Paris and was famous for his quips. He made a movie with Doris Day and later he said, oh, I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin. Oscar's first love was music, however. He composed a lot of music until he became relieved of the desire to do so because of the genius of George Gershwin. But in the 1940s, he wrote a little piano piece called Blue Plate Special. And I found this lacquer recording unlabeled amongst things from his collection. And when I played it, this is what it turned out to be, Blue Plate Special. There are very, very few recordings of Levant playing his own music. This is the only example of his sort of jazz classical styles. Levant was so eccentric, and, and he was so manic and neurotic that that is contained in his music. I mean, you hear his, his craziness, his angst, and his genius. Number two is a 1958 television theme for a series called The Thin Man. There was a famous uh, series of movies about this very suave detective, and uh, in the 50s they decided to turn it into a television series with Peter Lawford. But I found this promotional record in which they play the Thin Man theme the way it was heard on television, but in much better fidelity. And then they go into this dance band version that only seems to exist on this red vinyl record. The thing I love about the Thin Man theme is that it's orchestrated by Skip Martin and Billy May, who were two of the geniuses of American popular music. Billy May worked regularly with Peggy Lee and Frank Sinatra. And it shows the high quality of music that was being produced for television, which was the most disposable at that same time. This record was distributed to radio stations for the purpose of exploitation and promotion of the television show. And then the great Oscar-winning lyricist Sammy Kahn even wrote a lyric for it. The Thin Man. 
Because whenever they wrote those TV themes, they always instrumentally had the title of the thing in the music, The Thin Man, in hopes that they would have a hit. You know, like Bewitched. Bewitched, bewitched, you've got me so bewitched. Peggy Lee made a pop record of that, so sometimes these songs would become hits. Bonanza, we got a right to pick a little fight. Bonanza, you know, they all were for exploitation. Here's the last one. It's, it's Frank Sinatra. People think that they've heard every note ever recorded by Frank Sinatra, but there are a number of Sinatra recordings that are lost. For example, he recorded White Christmas for an MGM movie called Battleground, and they never used it. That's gone. And this is an example of a very famous song sung by Sinatra that won an Oscar, Three Coins in the Fountain. Which one will the fountain bless? Sinatra recorded it for the main title of the 20th Century Fox movie of the same name. However, in the film, you hear him sing, then they go into this instrumental interlude, and then the film gets into the body of the story. But on this recording that I have, this acetate, as it's called, um, after the instrumental interlude, Sinatra comes back in with the vocal and hits this high note at the end that's just spectacular, and nobody has ever heard it. come to accept that for whatever reason in my life the world seems to hurl these things at me often I will find a collection of discs that are unlabeled and uh, as often as they've turned out to be home recordings of baby speaking on his third birthday or something they also can be these extraordinary little gems you find amazing things at LA and Hollywood garage sales you're the only kind of knowledge they don't teach at any The guest list from Michael Feinstein. He performs this weekend with the Pasadena Symphony Orchestra. And Brendan, Michael told me actually some of his music could get lost. Hmm. We are listening right now to a tune from his fourth album. This was recorded with a digital recorder that is now obsolete. Ah. So it's hard to find one that can actually play back the master tapes. It's from like the 80s. Wow. One can only hope that Nickelback (laughs) used the same recorder. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't think we, the minority of Americans, will be so lucky. Perhaps. Uh, folks, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, Jimmy Walker, a.k.a. Kid Dynamite, answers your etiquette questions. When the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll take a trip to Ensenada, Mexico, to taste some of their famed seafood, which also has curative powers. It's really good for a hangover, I have to say. Later, comic Jimmy Walker stops by to answer your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, author Sheila Hetty reads from her new novel, How Should a Person Be? But first... It's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's English comedian Simon Amstel. He is the former host of the beloved BBC shows Pop World and Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Mm. He is also co-writer and star of the British sitcom Grandma's House. It's good to know they have grandmas there too. Uh, Yeah. He made his U.S. debut this week with the launch of his new live stand-up show called Numb. When I met up with him, I asked him why he became a comedian. Well, when I, I was about 14, I was attending a Saturday morning drama club. And there was an annual show, and the dancers were changing from their 
tap shoes into their ballet shoes for the next number. Mm. And they needed something happening in front of the curtain to cover that change. Is this real? This is a true story. Wow. Yeah. And I, at 14, because I was a terrible, precocious, ridiculous child, (laughs) said, can I do stand-up comedy? And they, because they were odd, said, yes, of course you can, (laughs) rather than saying, no, you're a child. Yeah. And so I did stand-up comedy in front of these people at 14. And... They were definitely laughing at me, but I, I liked the laughter anyway. And I thought, this is the best feeling ever. And I just I sort of carried on doing it. Do you remember any of your jokes from then? I mean, it was really like the opposite of who I am now. Like now I'm sort of, I'm, you know, really into nature and the environment <laughs> and stuff. And I remember doing stuff about green people. What about these green people who care more about uh, recycling their toilet paper than actually using it? <laughs> I mean, that's sort of... I mean, I don't know what that was. That's not bad for 14, though. Yeah, but it's such an odd... What yeah, an odd was... opinion. <laughs> why <laughs> would I, have, like, at 14, be so angry with people who care why about the environment? You, why were you at a tap dance competition? I mean, <laughs> come on, there's a lot of strange things happening. So you're you're pretty famous in England, right? I'm a little I'm a little bit famous. And, and you're, you're partially... You're partially known for your kind of cheeky interviewing style. You were a television presenter. Mm-hmm. You had uh, pop culture kind of celebrities come through. Yeah. Um, and you're sometimes mean to them, but you were, you were... I never felt it was mean. Okay. If you think Letterman is mean, then I was mean. Hmm. But I, I find him to be cheeky and wonderful and silly. I saw some video clips where people wanted to throttle you. I mean, they, they came over and... These people have got their own issues. <laughs> and it's nothing to do with me. I would say, you know, something to do with their... Maybe father issues, that mm. sort of thing. You know, okay. But it's not it's <laughs> nothing to do with me. All right. It's not me. What I find interesting is you're... you're persona, your television presenting persona, is very confident. Yeah. Now your stand-up comedy, you reveal a different side of yourself. It, it's very self-deprecating. It's sad. It, it's, it's about your anxiety. In fact, I was pretty sad watching your show last night. It was pretty depressing. I saw you in the like, third row. You were smiling. <laughs> there was smiling going on. But why... There are some parts that are just sad. Yeah. It's true. It is. But life is very difficult. <laughs> I just got to New York, and I'm, I'm on my own, which is, you just have to make plans. That's the thing, especially if you don't have a normal job, because if you live alone and you don't make plans, here is what happens. You wake up, and it just gets darker. So your current stand-up show, Numb, it's about loneliness and anxiety, you know? It's, it's kind of sad, yet it's funny. You're a student of comedy. Why is that stuff funny? Um, because I think, well, the only reason that comedy exists is because we have tragedy. Without tragedy, there'd be no need to mm. find... To, you know, people talk about you shouldn't make light of things. I think we must make light of things. What, do you want to make them darker? We can't make them any darker. <laughs> Life is really hard. We have to make these yeah. things, you know, more bearable for yeah. us to be able to cope with. Humor is a way of doing that. Laughter is a, a great release in the same way that crying is a great release. These things are sort of vital. So do you have a favorite part of your current stand-up routine? Um... Favorite part? That's a good question. What was your favorite part? I'll tell you if I like it. <laughs> I, I, my, my favorite part was your discussion of uh, yeah, being on vacation and thinking about sex. You, you, you think about sex all being the time. Being alone. If you're alone, then there's no, none of the social conventions that usually exist. Yeah. And you're not the uh, respectable human being that you are around the people that you know. And so sex becomes a big thing. Yeah. And even if you do something respectable like attend the Anne Frank Museum, you're still thinking about sex. <laughs> it's a real problem. It's a real problem. So yeah, I think that was my favorite part of your show, although you said it a little bit differently just now. Well, I, I felt embarrassed to just repeat the joke because 
You're the so only person in this room. I know, that's awkward. And you saw the show last night. But you've been a host. You know that I represent the audience and they haven't seen your show, so I'm responsible for all of my listeners. And yeah, so listeners. Who is listening? Who are the people? Well, uh, my mom. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> she's not. She's in Europe right now. They don't get this. Um, oh, but, you can send uh, her tapes. Yeah, maybe I can send her tape. My dad? No, he doesn't listen. Oh, let's talk about that. Mm. Huh? Yeah, I don't, it's just you and me, actually. You're right. You think so you're right to feel awkward. When your father doesn't listen, do you think, what do I have to do? <laughs> I'm on the radio. What do um, I have interviewing... to do to get your attention? Yeah, it's true. It's yeah, true. Right? I'm a bro- why, why else am I a broadcast journalist? Can I be heard at this side of the dinner table? There we Guys. are. There it is. There it is. And you know what the truth is? What's up? He'll never listen. <laughs> and the sooner you accept that. Wow, I feel... <laughs> Better and worse at the good, same time. Thanks good. for that. That's the healing. Um, all right, so we have a couple standard questions in our show. Our first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Well, the last thing I did in the UK was this sitcom called Grandma's House. But before that, I did this TV show where, that you were talking about with all the celebrities. Yeah. And the question that really bugs me is, why did you leave that show? Is this Nevermind the Buzzcocks? Yes. And they say, why did you... Yeah. Why did you leave? And I say, well, I was three years, I was a bit bored. And they go, but why, why did you leave? And I say, because I was bored. I wanted to do something else. And they go, but you were so good at that. <laughs> so that is upsetting. So we're not going to ask you why you left that show, because we, we didn't even watch that show in America. So. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> you, you'll never have that question. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> All right, our second question or request is, yeah. tell us something we don't know, something you haven't talked about in interviews before. I love America. You're just saying that because you want us to love you back. I mean, I suppose, I suppose I do want America to love me back, but I just feel America... When I think about Jesus, I think, although it's geographically and historically a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say, I feel he was an American. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, if you think about that, it's a, it's a stupid thing to say, but then if you don't think about it, it feels true, doesn't it? Must do you even been. believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, I think, yeah, I do. I, I mean, he existed. He was a Jew. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because Americans like Jesus so much, you're also Jewish. You feel like, hey, if they like that if like that, If they like that Jew, they're going to love me. <laughs> I'm even funnier than Jesus. If you think about some of the things he said, I'm funnier. Wow. Be careful. You know, the last time uh, a British pop culture phenomena compared themselves to a Christian deity. No, but they, they said bigger than. Oh, yeah. That's I'm not true. saying I'm bigger than Jesus. I'm just saying funnier. Okay. And, you know, that's not the same. That's not the same thing, right? Please, I've just got my visa. Please let me stay in the country. I'm less funny than Jesus. I take it all back. Enrico, I just want to note that I was joking. My father does listen to our radio show. Of course. I think. Actually, actually, Dad, if you're listening to this, next time we see each other, could you just say sea otter to let me know you heard this? I'd appreciate it. Sea otter. Okay. And for the rest of our listeners, we encourage you to go to our website where we have posted a video montage of Simon's greatest moments from his former TV show, Nevermind the Buzzcocks. We're at dinnerpartydownload.org. You can see for yourself whether he is cheeky or mean. And now, time to eavesdrop. Sheila Hetty is a Canadian novelist and an editor of the magazine The Believer. Her widely praised novel, How Should a Person Be?, was just released in the U.S. Today we overhear her read a dinner party-worthy excerpt. Hi, my name is Sheila Hetty, and I'm going to be reading from the prologue to my new book, How Should a Person Be?, 
The book takes place right now in Toronto. The protagonist's name is Sheila, and the book is basically her attempt to answer this question, how should a person be, through her relationships with different people. And the book has a, a sort of reality element to it. There's emails and transcriptions from real conversations in it, plus fiction. How should a person be? For years and years, I asked it of everyone I met. I was always watching to see what they were going to do in any situation, so I could do it too. I was always listening to their answers, so if I liked them, I could make them my answers too. I noticed the way people dressed, the way they treated their lovers. In everyone, there was something to envy. You can admire anyone for being themselves. It's hard not to when everyone's so good at it. But when you think of them all together like that, how can you choose? How can you say, I'd rather be responsible like Misha than irresponsible like Margot? Responsibility looks so good on Misha, and irresponsibly looks so good on Margot. How could I know which would look best on me? I admired all the great personalities down through time, like Andy Warhol and Oscar Wilde. They seemed to be so perfectly themselves in every way. I didn't think those are great souls, but I did think those are some great personalities for our age. Charles Darwin, Albert Einstein. They did things, but they were things. I know that personality is just an invention of the news media. I know that character exists from the outside alone. I know that inside the body there's just temperature. So how do you build your soul? At a certain point I know you have to forget about your soul and just do the work you're required to do. To go on and on about your soul is to miss the whole point of life. I could say that with more certainty if I knew the whole point of life. To worry too much about Oscar Wilde and Andy Warhol is just a lot of vanity. How should a person be? I sometimes wonder about it, and I can't help answering like this. A celebrity. But for all that I love celebrities, I would never move somewhere that celebrities actually exist. My hope is to live a simple life, in a simple place, where there's only one example of everything. By a simple life, I mean a life of undying fame that I don't have to participate in. I don't want anything to change, except to be as famous as one can be, but without that changing anything. Everyone would know in their hearts that I am the most famous person alive but not talk about it too much. And for no one to be too interested in taking my picture, for they'd all carry around in their heads an image of me that was unchanging, startling, and magnetic. No one has to know what I think, for I don't really think anything at all. And no one has to know the details of my life, for there are no good details to know. It is the quality of fame one is after here, without any of its qualities. In an hour, Marco's gonna come over and we're gonna have our usual conversation. Before I was 25, I never had any friends. But the friends I have now interest me nonstop. Margot compliments me in interesting ways. She paints my picture and I record what she's saying. We do whatever we can to make the other one feel famous. In this way, I should be satisfied with being famous to three or four of my friends. And yet it's an illusion. They like me for who I am. And I would rather be liked for who I appear to be. And for who I appear to be, to be who I am. Writer Sheila Hetty, reading from her novel How Should a Person Be? And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, one of the hottest food regions in America isn't in America. You're talking about Texas, obviously. (laughs) 
No, they're they're still part of the country. I think. Are you sure? Are you sure about I'm that? I'm not, but I think so. Uh, no, <laughs> okay. I'm talking about Baja, Mexico, just over the border oh. from California. There are great yes. restaurants opening all over the place down there. And earlier this year, Anthony Bourdain himself compared mm. Baja to Tuscany as a food destination. Whoa. So I headed down to the town of Ensenada. Which is known for their seafood. Indeed. And I went to a little street corner stand that is known to serve the best ceviche dishes around. With the help of translator and Baja tourism officer Cesar Rivera, I asked the owner to introduce herself. Sabina Bandera, Marisco La Guerrerense. Her name is Sabina Bandera, and her shop is Seafood La Guerrerense. And what, how long have you been uh, doing this shop? 36 years here in Ensenada. Only 36 years right here in Ensenada. <laughs> so you've got, you've got some experience, but you're still a little wet behind the ears. She always tries to improve and do better. Even, it looks like you're doing okay. Uh, people love your stand. There are a lot of ceviche stands in Ensenada. What makes your stand stand out? Well, she says that it's, the own, it's, it's unique because they carry uh, 14 different types of, uh, of well, seafood dish as you see right here. 14? Yes, and all the different sauces. You have all these sauces here. How many sauces, first of all? Son 14 types of sauces. 14, also 14 different types of sauces. And she does a lot of experimental sauces as well. But, Mango. Yeah, she says, I mean, pineapple. Apple, aceite de olivo. Olive oil. Which is your favorite sauce, you think? La de cacahuate, la de mi jardín. No en Chile, y es el sabor que se le da. The one from her garden? Which she mixes with peanut. She actually does that. Well, she plants the chili in her garden. And some of the other uh, spices are sent from Guerrero, from her cousins. Uh, so she can mix the different sauces. Guerrero is another region of... It's another state. Yeah, very popular also on seafood in Mexico. It's called La Guerrerense. She's from Guerrero. Now, there are a ton of people here right now. Uh, this place has gotten a, a lot of attention lately. Are there more people coming by the stand in recent months? More than 65 or 70,000 people come here in this uh, spot a year. 60,000 people? 60, yes. You must be very busy. <laughs> How many people do you have working yeah. for you here? Three or four people to serve 60,000. It's not bad. Mi viejo, mi sobrino. Her honey or her husband. <laughs> And then nephew. So let me ask you, when you're on vacation, do you actually still like to eat seafood or do you have your fill? Actually, uh, she likes to taste everything so she can compare herself and make things better. Uh, so you can you, you check out your competition so you can beat them. It's totally correct. She's, she's, she totally agrees with that. July 21st, she's going to be at the Rose Bowl in a competition. She uh, came with the first prize last year on the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. All right, well, I promise I will be back to try some of this award-winning, apparently, ceviche, but uh, first I'm going to talk to some of your customers. And I'm speaking with... Max. And are you a regular customer here? Not as regular as I wish I could be, but every time I come to Ensenada, I stop by here and have some delicious tostadas. Where are you from? I'm from France. Did you come all the way here for this? Well, not for this, but when I purchased my ticket, I knew I would stop here, yeah. It's simple. Every morning they go and purchase what they're going to sell in the afternoon. 
So every day what you eat is really fresh. Couldn't be any fresher, I suppose. All right, and you're here with a friend who is actually from around here. What is your name? Ines. I was born here and I've been coming here for years and years, but now it has drawn a lot of media attention. And like I was coming back from here, I turned on TV and Doña Sabina was there. I was like, what? When did this happen? Are there more? Do you find the crowds around here different? Do you see the, is it more international, the crowds at this stand? Well, yeah, it is a lot more international, but also it has become hip. So right now, like after a good party, the day after, because it's really good for a hangover, I have to say, they come here to like cure their hangover. All the hipsters of Ensenada will be here on Sunday morning. Ensenada and elsewhere too. <laughs> so normally the uh, specialty of the house is ceviche served on a tostada, kind of a crunchy tortilla. But they're making me something different. Oh, and look at this. On a simple styrofoam plate, we're being given one of the more beautiful fish dishes I've ever seen. It's on a, in a large clamshell. There's uh, chopped up clam and all these different kinds of salsas, which we'll never know fully the identity of all of them. There's avocado, cilantro it looks like in there. Oh man. And it's all served inside the uh, open clamshell. It's like a beautiful sea flower. We're going to take a bite of this stuff. Oh man. It is so good. You'd think a clam this big would be very tough and it's not. It's just tender and delicious. And now I'm feeling at home because the guy behind me is starting to play Pink Floyd on a guitar. And Brendan, that is what you call a beautiful moment. If you like raw clam and Pink Floyd. Which we both do, I think. Absolutely. It's an excellent pairing. <laughs> By the way, that Rose Bowl event Sabina Bandera mentioned is the L.A. Street Food Fest. She will be serving uh -huh. sea snail tostadas there this Sunday. Mm. We have got more info at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we're going to take a break. But coming up, 70 star Jimmy Dynamite Walker is here to answer your etiquette questions. Mm. And we hear the tale of a musician who should have been a 70s star. The producers thought that they had the new villain. All about that when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Peter Silberman of indie band The Antlers suggests a dinner party soundtrack. And coming up, we bear witness to the resurrection of folk rock singer Rodriguez. It's literally like learning that Elvis Presley is alive. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and we invite a cool person to come by and answer those questions. This week, we're joined by comic Jimmy Walker. He is best known for playing J.J. Evans on the classic sitcom Good Times. That role made him one of the first young black sitcom stars. And J.J. had a very famous catchphrase. Here's a clip. Dynamite! And Dynamite is also the name of Jimmy Walker's new memoir. Jimmy, thanks for joining us. Always good being here on the big station, baby. When you go down <laughs> low on the radio dial, this is That's what you right. get. Jimmy, J.J., in the wowsy housy babies. <laughs> you just made public radio single-handedly more exciting. We're gone for Make your donations, baby. Bring All some these... gin and juice in here. <laughs> wow. All these Volvos just accelerated around America. <laughs> You've been a stand-up comic for over 40 years, yet you're most well-known for a character you played decades ago. 
I want to know what are some of the things that aren't as well known about Jimmy Walker that you'd like people to know? Oh, heck darn it. I think a lot of people don't know about my writing staff. In the old days when I had coin, cash, rubles, pesos, drachma. Money. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just translate for the audience. Yeah, I had I had a large writing staff of 31, actually. On good times? or no, for your... Just for my act. For my stand-up act, we had uh, Jay Leno on the staff. We had David Letterman on the staff. We had Louis Anderson. We had Fred Handy from Saturday Night Live. Great writing staff. And I'm so happy that everybody has done so well except for Pops. Pops is the only one looking for a little help from the staff. What? You're, You're doing, doing fine. You're doing fine. You have that app. Yeah, you got a mobile phone app. Hey, I got the Dynamite app, Jimmy Walker original app. You can yeah, remember that. You, you didn't have a writer's room come up with that name, I'm guessing. No. Yeah, that was a high-level decision. <laughs> we went right to the top in Century City we were talking about. Leno gave you that name. Leno, yeah, right. I just tossed you that bone. <laughs> All right, well, let's let's ask some of these questions we have we got from the audience. No questions. Sorry, I'm leaving. All right. All right, here's something from Kenneth in Olympia, Washington. What is the best way to tell somebody that they milk the sympathy that one gets from being sick, and it's like they go out of their way to contract colds and stomach viruses? I have a friend who does this, and at first we all thought he had an immune deficiency problem, but then we realized he was purposefully getting sick so he could skip out on work and get get well cards all the time. Get well cards? Oh, man, you're a really good friend. (laughs) Who sends get well cards? Maybe we shouldn't be asking this to you unless you're also a psychologist because this person is insane. What you do is you just say we're going to have an anti-text movement. We're not going to text this guy anymore, Hmm. and we're not returning any textus. That's the word, textus? You made it up. We're not returning any text, and we're just going to let them lay there. And then when we do text them, we'll be in a restaurant and we'll say, He'll say, Well, why didn't you invite me? Oh, we thought you were too sick to come. Right. <laughs> we thought you were dead. You were too sick. You can't come to Rosales and have Cuban food. <laughs> Sorry, you're out. So you're basically saying communication blackout and communication then communication blackout. Then torture him with all the fun things you're doing without him. In the Olympia, Washington area. Yeah. We, oh, man. We just went to the, uh, the Mariners game and we were at a Seattle <laughs> football practice and we're at the Jimi <laughs> Hendrix Museum right now. That's what we're doing. It's fabulous. Oh we're God. walking home now with some Starbucks from the original Starbucks. <laughs> Starbucks place. You would just throw it up. Sorry. <laughs> All right. That's terrible. Kenneth, that's your answer. We have another question. This comes from Nadanya in Atlanta. What's the best way to inform a coworker, or anyone for that matter, that his, her personal telephone conversations are entirely too loud and lengthy? Ah, see, that's the new thing now. Everybody's got these, uh, these cell phones. Cell phones. Mm. Man, do I hate cell phones. I go back to the old days with phones. You had just one big black phone in the house. Rotary dial. Mm. And every year the cord kept curling up closer to the wall. You remember that? <laughs> the cord just kept curling and curling. That would keep people from doing long conversations. No long conversations. They were just flat up against the wall. No, the thing is, uh, when people have conversations that are too loud, what you do is you get on the phone and you turn your speaker on louder than their phone. Mm. So they become aware of how rude that is. But then uh, couldn't that potentially just lead to sort of an arms race of noise? Yes. But we love that because then you win. We always like to win. That's But do you win or does everyone lose? It sounds no, no. Like to me. They, you win because that person notices you. See? That's true. That does sound like a stand-up comics like solution, though. <laughs> yeah. Get them to notice you. That's it. That You must be noticed. Well done. All right. All right. We have one more question for you, and it's one that we ask all our etiquette guests. What is the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Details, please. 
Oh, man, I got to come up with something here, the memorable get-together. Yeah, you were on Fantasy Island, so I kind of wanted to involve Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> Ricardo Montalban. I, I remember Hervé Velicez, her the little person, Hervé Velicez, walking around with an ascot in a tam. And he had a, one of those long cigarettes with the holder in it. That's stylish, man. Yeah, he was styling. But you know what? It, I, that, that's a good story. But in this book, you have meetings with Sidney Poitier. You have... Sidney Poitier. Oh. Sidney would always say, J.J., I need you to act smaller. It's much too large. He was uh, directing you. Yes. And let's do it again. It was your first uh, role, right? For, in no, film. No, no. It wasn't my first role. I, I've done a lot of garbage before that. The first one you admitted. I did <laughs> I did a, a movie with Robert Duvall called Badge 373. And it was very, very tiny part in the movie Airplane. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. As the window washer of the Thank plane. Thank you very much. A scene I still think about, by the way, when I'm trying to brighten my mood during airport security. I tell you a true story, too. Talk about TSA. 9-11 happened. We all remember that. Mm -hmm. Terrible thing for a week. We didn't fly. All right. I flew the first day that you could fly. So finally I get in the airport, and a girl standing behind one of the counters looks at me, and she goes, oh, my goodness, dynamite. And <laughs> oh, eight no. security guys <laughs> pick her up and go, that's it. You're going away. Are you kidding? Did the that absolute really true story. Oh, my god. Then they threw her in the office and never saw her again. I think that was actually a joke in the movie Airplane. <laughs> that's a true story. That actually happened at McCarran Airport at Terminal B. Oh, man. If you need it. There you have it. Jimmy Walker. His new memoir is out now. I have a book, Dynamite. Look it up on uh, Amazon. Do and not bring it on an airplane. That's right. That's right. If you hold it up, you're done. What are you reading on the plane, sweetheart? <laughs> Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> so on this show, we aim to give you fascinating cultural items to talk about at your weekend gatherings. Well, this coming week, the documentary Searching for Sugar Man opens. And it tells the amazing and very dinner party worthy tale of the folk rock musician Rodriguez. Here to talk about it are two folks involved with the film. And by the way, there are going to be a lot of spoilers coming up. In fact, just by introducing one of these people, I'm giving away a major twist of the story. Uh, we've first of all got the director, Malik Benjalou. Hello. And the musician himself, Rodriguez. It's an honor. Hello. We could go, yeah, no, thanks. You are alive. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Which is not entirely clear for much of the film. We'll get to that. Yes. Uh, first, Malik, I wanted to ask you, you are a Swedish filmmaker. How did you come upon the story of this almost completely unknown 1970s era Detroit musician? I, I quit my job in 2006 and I went traveling with a camera looking for stories you know backpacking and then okay. and in Cape Town I found a story and I was like wow this is the best story I ever heard and ever going to hear in my life <laughs> Cape Town South <laughs> Africa of course Cape Town South Africa all right so let's back this up though a little let's go to 1970 I'll set up the story Rodriguez you put out your debut record cold fact yes and it's produced by some of the biggest names in the business right who else do they produce uh, well they produced other artists from Motown Steve Wonder Marvin Gaye Temptations uh, Dennis Coffey was one of the producers and in the Motown material, they used four guitarists in their sessions, and Dennis Coffey was one of them. He's an excellent guitarist. Right. And the, there were huge expectations, correct, for this thing? They expected a hit. The producers thought that they had the new Dylan. I mean, they, they had done Steve Wonder and Marvin Gaye, and they said, this is better. This is going to conquer the world. Sugar man, won't you hurry? Because I'm tired of these scenes. For a blue coin, 
Won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams? Silver magic ships you carry, jumpers, coke, sweet Mary Jane. And the album yeah. flops immensely. It's it flops yeah. so much. It sounds like 50 copies. And he makes another album, same result. So he stops and he starts to work in, in construction uh, in Detroit and never learns that somehow one of those albums gets to South Africa. And in South Africa, Rodriguez becomes more famous than the Rolling Stones. Not just that, uh, Rodriguez, you, you were kind of this mouthpiece for the anti-apartheid movement. That's what I've been told, but I didn't know about that. My lyrics are uh, just speaking to that environment. Sixties and seventies, cities were ablaze. The students are burning the draft cards, resisting the draft, going to Canada, shot and killed for demonstrating against the war. And so, the seriousness of these kinds of things, I think, was paralleled in the seriousness of what was happening in South Africa. So your music becomes this rallying cry in South Africa. But meanwhile, they don't know anything about you, and they think you're dead. Yes, <laughs> right. Everybody's got this album that they love, but they all think you're dead. What are, what are some of your favorite legends of your so-called death? Oh, Ricky Galliano. I don't have any favorites about it. But one of them was that uh, I had burned myself up on stage. I went up in smoke. You, you literally. But I didn't know about these myths. What, what happens is that in South Africa, Rodriguez is as famous and as dead as Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the situation for 30 years. And yeah. after 30 years, there's a, in the mid-90s, there's a detective, a musical detective who'd want to know how did Rodriguez die? Because in South Africa, everyone knows he's dead, but there are different versions on how he died. And yeah. after years of, of a search, he finds the producer of the album and, and he calls him and he's, you know, how did he die? And the producer's just, no, I, I just saw Rodriguez this morning. He's living down the street. Well, I'm curious, actually, what some of these South African fans felt about meeting the legend. I mean, part of what makes a cult hit like this is that air of mystery. It was perfect. They didn't know about him. He was dead, so they could make him into anything they wanted. How I mean, did the reality measure up to them? I mean, what happened when he first came was that people didn't first pay attention because they knew, no, 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 no. this is a tribute act. This is a con artist. <laughs> it can't be the real guy. It's literally like learning that Elvis Presley is alive. That was the scale of it. And then they realized it's Rodriguez. It's the most beautiful scenes I have ever seen in my life. This guy who never performed to more than 50 people in America and he plays stadiums. I, th I know one of the folks in the film talks about interviewing you, Rodriguez, and says he comes away a little flummoxed. Like he knows nothing more about you after that, either because you're just shy or just very private. Is it a burden kind of to have people want you to open up or maybe live up to this legend that they have? Well, I'm a musician and uh, <clears throat> musicians are accessible. I mean, it's... Uh, I'm certainly out there to, to meet my audiences, but I do have my private life, like, like anyone. And so I, I kind of was skeptical and resistant about the film itself. <laughs> and of course, when he came, it's impossible for someone to become the Beatles in, in one day. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's, it's, it is like the Truman Show or something. The thing was that Rodriguez took to it pretty easy. When you see him perform, he's actually not nervous. He just goes on stage and meet all those thousands and thousands of people who are screaming and crying. It's like a, like a fairy, like a Cinderella fairy tale. I wonder how many times you've been heading. I wonder how many plans have gone bad. I wonder how 
and Brendan the Fairy Tale continues. The Rodriguez movie Searching for Sugar Man hits theaters this coming Friday. Two days later, he plays the Newport Folk Festival. Next month, he plays Letterman. Wow. Yeah. And meanwhile, the entire country of South Africa is like, whatever, man, I was into Rodriguez when he was dead. (laughs) (laughs) If that's how they talk there. You're a bunch of posers, rest of the world. So, Rico, it turns out I wasn't lying. The show so far has been dynamite. I never doubted it. I I would have chosen (laughs) another word. That's me. That's you. But we still need one more ingredient to set people up for a perfect weekend. The soundtrack. Yes, Peter Silberman is the man behind Brooklyn-based indie band The Antlers. They have a new EP coming out next week called Undersea. Here he is with some suggestions about what to play at your next dinner party. Hey, this is Peter from The Antlers, and we have a new EP coming out called Undersea. This is my dinner party soundtrack. Well, my first selection is a song called Netsanet by Mulatu Astatke. I hope I'm pronouncing all of those things right. He's an Ethiopian, or he was, I don't know if he's still alive, I hope he is, um, Ethiopian jazz conductor and arranger. This is a song from in between 69 and 74. Great jazz, kind of like secret agent jazz almost. There's something in, in maybe the chord structures and the melodies that I'm really responding to because I definitely gravitate towards that kind of noir style of guitar playing. That's something that I kind of picked up from a lot of like Portishead records and then gone back to try and trace the roots of it and where this style originated and some of the feel of that is in this and it you know it's a very jazz kind of style my next song is called family tree by sandro perry who is a canadian musician and producer who released a record called tiny mirrors in 2007. he used to record under the name palmo palpo really beautiful ambient music, and then started making these Sandro Perry records that are these kind of almost Tropicalia-infused songs. Under the family tree, beyond the leaves you can't see, and how unwillingly you let your seeds grow, there they go, leaving you to sow, bereft of your leaves, beset with weeds very smooth, warm production and beautiful nylon guitar. It's super relaxed. It sounds like vacation, but also has this emotional quality to it that is it's very like heartfelt and a little bit sad. Not that dinner parties should be sad, but more that I think if you're with your close friends, there's, you know, something meaningful about that, and I think this is a good uh, song for that. My third track is called Send Me Dub. A track by King Tubby, kind of old classic dub song. This starts with these really beautiful, I'm not sure what they are, keyboards or, or some kind of synthesizer, and then it drops in the sample. Then it goes into just like a long extended dub jam, and you just get lost in it. King Tubby was a producer in like 60s and 70s Jamaica in Kingston. He was kind of the originator of this style of dub that is some of the earliest electronic music. It's really hypnotic and, and trance-like and based on reggae, but 
you know, has psychedelic qualities to it. It really heavily utilizes tape echoes. Produces a lot of sounds that I think were really ahead of their time and really influential on, on so much music and definitely a lot of the music that we've been making in the past few years. I think if I was going to select Nantler's song for a dinner party, it might be Endless Ladder, which is an eight-and-a-half-minute <laughs> song off of Undersea, this new thing that we're releasing. And it's it's just very patient and meditative, and I think it'd be good for uh, good for cooking, good for just chopping vegetables. dinner party soundtrack from Peter Silberman of indie band The Antlers. Their new EP, Undersea, comes out next week on Anti Records. And that's the dinner party for this week, everybody. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of the dinner party. Tamika Adams and James Kim are the interns for the dinner party. Did you hear that? We have interns, and they're amazing. (laughs) Soon the only thing you and I will have to do is the cocktail segment. God willing. Uh, Thanks also to Bill Lance, Jeff Peters, Peter Clowney, and our friends at the public radio show, Marketplace. Bon appétit.